With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Before we start this week's show, I'll tell you about Hell in High Water, a podcast about politics, culture, on the edge of Armageddon. In other words, the last two years and counting. Hosted by my friend John Heilman, one of the most adept political journalists in the country. You know him as host of The Circus on Showtime or from his regular appearances as a national affairs analyst on MSNBC and NBC News. In hell and high water, John dissects our tumultuous times with deep thinkers from the world of politics, policy, and culture. It's people like national security expert Tom Nichols, comedian and filmmaker W. Kamu Bell, journalist Julia Afi, and Applebaum, and me, yeah, me. If you like in-depth conversation and get at the heart of the apocalyptic moment we're li- still living through, then you need to check out Hell and High Water. So listen and subscribe to Hell and High Water wherever you get your podcasts or look for the link in our show notes. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is a PBS NewsHour chief correspondent and an Emmy award-winning journalist who's traveled to the southern border numerous times, Amna Nawaz. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the links to this week's sponsors, the Democracy in Danger podcast, Chili Sleep Systems, and Raycon in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James Carville, there's talk among establishment Republicans that Trump is losing his clout within the party. They fight a, they cite a few examples, the Georgia governor's race, the Texas uh, congressional primary. It is a pipe dream. Look at the GOP landscape across America. It is a Trump-dominated Republican Party almost everywhere. Every major interest group is opposing Liz Cheney, a down-the-line conservative. In North Carolina, his endorsement of a right-wing candidate is likely to carry the day in the May primary, and the same in Pennsylvania, where he endorsed the TV charlatan Dr. Oz. Uh, Herschel Walker, the football star and spousal abuser, is his guy in Georgia. He's got almost a free ride. And in Ohio, they are slobbering all over each other to see who is the most Trumpian. And, And look at Colorado. It doesn't get as much attention. But the top Republican Senate choice out there in Colorado is Ron Hanks, who not only claims Trump won the 2020 election, but he really, and he also attended the January 6th event with a mob assault on the Capitol to try to overturn that election. But they didn't stop there, James. The Republican convention's top choice for Secretary of State is Tina Peters. Now, you might ask, who is Tina Peters? 
Peters. She is the Mesa, the Mesa County clerk who's under indictment for helping QAnon conspiracy theorists illegally access voting equipment. So don't tell me this is not a Trump party. And when Mitch McConnell, who hates Trump and wants him to go away, says, well, he's really been a more moderating influence this year, he doesn't believe that. And most of all those candidates out there are spreading that pernicious lie that the American electoral system is corrupt. It, it emphatically, of course, is not, but they are undermining confidence, which is dangerous in a democratic society. Well, uh, all right, I'm going to disagree a little bit here. I, I, I think that two things are true, and they're, they're kind of contradictory. Number one is he is losing some influence within the Republican Party. Number two is he's still the major influence in the Republican Party. But both are, are eminently capable of being true. And from the standpoint of being a Democrat facing a, a what looks like it's going to be a gruesome election year, what do you, what do you want? How, how powerful do you want Trump in the party? He obviously has some value, you know, keeping him split. So I don't know, but but he is losing some influence. He's still the dominant person in the party. Uh, if you look at even in North Carolina, I mean, I know crowds, what do they mean? Who knows? But his crowds are definitely further off, you know, not as big as they used to. He didn't have a good but it's chosen candidate in Alabama. But, hey, I'm, I'm kind of pulling for the guy and, and, and to some extent. And you know that Mitch McConnell is pulling against him. So if Mitch McConnell is against somebody, that by default, James Carville thinks it's a good idea. Yeah, James, his crowd wasn't very good in North Carolina. But much more importantly, uh, the, the right-wing Republican he endorsed, Congressman Ted Budd, was running behind the former governor in the polls. Trump endorsed Bud, and now there are two polls out that show Bud with a double-digit lead. And I Good. would be very surprised if Dr. Oz doesn't forge into the lead in Pennsylvania. It's hard. I mean, Alabama, he, he, he supported a, uh, you know, a bad candidate. He withdrew that endorsement. It's hard to find, other than Georgia, any place uh, where they're really going against Trump. Well, uh, Brian, Kemp, primaries, going, Brian Kemp is, not, is you know, the Trump's endorsed Purdue. I said other than Georgia. Right. Yeah, okay. I said well, other than well, Georgia. I mean, uh, you know, uh, and Alabama. That's, and other, other than one race. I mean, he, right. he, he Al got Alabama in this race. Right. Alabama, he, he didn't do very I'm, – I'm, look, I'm not I'm, – I don't want him to lose his power to, to some extent. But I think he's – he you know, he got 58% at CPAC. That's not that great. Incumbent president who, you know, darling of the whatever the conservative movement is, they're going to have their con next convention in, 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 in Budapest, in Hungary, all right? It was at 58%. And, I mean, he's got real people, you know, DeSantis is, like, real, is, is challenging him. And people, you know, like Christopher Rufo and people like that are signing on with DeSantis. I, I, I'm just saying, he, of course, he's a, a major figure, but he's not, uh, he's not omnipotent anymore. He's not all-knowing and all-powerful over that. Well, and I, I don't know if that's a good trend. some of those Republican... Some of those Republican uh, Senate candidates, because I haven't seen them anywhere. Uh, you know, speaking of those, I would mention, we mentioned Dr. Oz. Uh, his main opponent is David McCormick. Everybody out there ought to read Josh Green's devastating 
piece in Bloomberg Business Week this week on McCormick. McCormick is a West Point graduate. He's a veteran. He's a hedge fund CEO. He came into the race when he decided to run in Pennsylvania, a state that he was born in but left many, many years ago. Came in with pretty good credentials. And in the process, he's tarnished them all. He's running not as what he has been or what he believes in, but as a Trump uh, Trumpite down the line, hiring every Trump uh, hanger on that he can. But what's really interesting in that piece is that Josh Green asks him four times, does he believe the 2020 election was legitimate? Now, that's a certainly fair question to ask a candidate. Four times, Mr. McCormick ducked and evaded and refused to answer the question. That's really kind of elemental. And depending on your preference of descriptions, James, Mr. McCormick has become either a political chameleon or a political whore. You know, look at Glenn Youngkin. But, but you know what they call Glenn Youngkin? Governor. Right? And, of course, and you can ask him 40 times and he's not going to get you an, give you an answer. And... I don't know how I don't think that's I don't think that's irrelevant. I don't think you say, oh, you can ask him four times. Well, I mean, when a guy doesn't somebody, answer a central question, it, it, it's relevant. It, it, it's relevant to somebody like you and I. All right. When you look at Tom Etzel, it's relevant today, to voters, James. No, no. It's relevant to voters. I, I don't know. If, I don't. Well, it, whether they don't, it's relevant whether you think we have honest elections or not. That's just simply relevant. I'm, that's that's I, what democracy again, is. Again, Al, I'm, I'm, of course it's relevant to me. I think it's – I think if you read Tom's piece today in the, in, in the Times, democracy is not even relevant to most voters. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that it's not a piece of information. I'm just saying – He's gonna. He'll duck it for forty more times, and he 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 may lose in the general. I don't know that, but he's gonna. A lot of them go vote for him anyway. I don't know if he'll win or lose, and I don't don't know what. All I'm saying is that 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 is a central question about our system. If you can't answer that, you ought to be asked forty times. You ought to be asked eighty times. You ought to be asked continually because you know what? It goes to the core of what we're about, whether it affects the electoral outcome or not. It's more important than whether he wins or loses in many ways. I'm sure he'll get asked if he exposes himself. If he's like Yunkin, he'll just run and hide. Well, he probably shouldn't have. He probably made a mistake sitting down with Josh Green, who's a terrific reporter and uh, uh, wrote probably a did. Piece and that's on good. He probably learned his lesson. He's sitting down with anybody else between now. Probably and the last time he's gonna about. he's gonna do yeah. that when those that's the Stephen Miller, <laughs> Stephen Miller, and those other Trumpites say, "Hey, David, uh, you know we don't need yeah. that." Um, you don't need, I don't. You, don't need I, Josh I, you know, I have very little else, but I do think um, I'm a huge admirer of Zelensky. The Ukrainian president has been marvelous through this. Made a little bit of a mistake this week when he stiffed the German who coming over there. I understand why he's upset with the Germans. But Zelensky needs to keep that alliance together as much as he can. And that includes talking to some of the weaker members uh, of that alliance. We're, we're, we're going, I think, in the next three or four weeks to a seminal, a make or break time. I mean, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but the Russian onslaught will be massive. And uh, if the Ukrainians can hold on through this, uh, then I think I think they have a real shot. Yeah, I, you know, I'm reluctant to say anything because everything that I read and thought before was all wrong. So maybe something, you know, everybody thought that, you know, it'd take the Russians a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks, and they'd run over them, and it didn't it'd not work like that. From I, I saw General Petraeus was on 
Fox, which I think is good, by the way, Harris Faulkner, who is, you know, as stupid as most of them. Let me me be clear. She she can hold her own. And and he was very good. And she kept saying, well, Biden is not giving them this. And he tried to explain. He says, look, Harris, they can't, they they, they operate, they can get to operate to check weapons. They're not trained on ours. And and he was very, look, I'm not, I was very critical about Afghanistan, but he was very good the way he brought it back. And he, he really schooled her good. He did a good job. That's good. And, good you, know, on, uh, you know, Mark Kelly, the senator who also is a former pilot and astronaut, said, look, I'd love to give them planes. They can't fly them. You can't give them planes. Right. They can't fly. So right. um, uh, I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe Biden could do a little bit more, but I think he's done just about everything. And we'll he's done a lot. I mean, and, and there's more. And every day, you know, we're training them. Some people have been trained. And, you know, you, you, you say, well, it's a war attrition. Russia's got more people. It's a bigger country. You know, they've lost, most people think, like a quarter of their force already over there. And I'm not, I'm not sure that they all keyed up to, to have a war of attrition. But I, I, I don't know. I just don't trust what I read because everything I've read to now has been pretty much wrong. Yeah, 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 it has been. They lost a lot of generals. Hey, James, Amna Navaz is one of the best reporters and anchor people in Washington. And among her many specialties, she has reported extensively on immigration and the southern border. Amna, first, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, there is a fierce struggle in the Democratic Party, especially, uh, that uh, probably uh, about something that few Americans know about, Title 42, created by Trump to shut down much of the border. Explain to us and our listeners, what is it and why is there such a fuss over lifting it? So Title 42, uh, which people probably heard and read a lot about, was actually technically a CDC policy. It's a health policy that they put into place during the pandemic. It was implemented and rolled out by the Trump administration early in the pandemic. Um, And it was basically a measure that they took because they said this would help to stop the spread of the coronavirus. So what it basically meant was that the entire southern border was shut down. Um, It meant anyone who came, even trying to make what would technically be a legal claim of asylum, would immediately be expelled. That included children who were traveling alone too. And so that stayed in place for the duration of the Trump administration, began back in March of 2020. When the Biden administration came in, they kept it in place. And there was a lot of pressure on them, particularly from Democrats and from immigration advocates, to lift it because a lot of people saw it as something the Trump administration had pressured the CDC to put into place and keep into place mainly as an immigration restriction measure, not necessarily with clear-cut science and data to back up the pandemic restrictions. And so the Biden administration has been weighing it, been weighing it, been weighing it, but the numbers at the border have really been challenging and already overtaxed and stressed immigration system at the border. And there's been a lot of uncertainty about the pandemic and what variant could come next and what it would mean. But they finally just announced uh, on April 1st that they will be lifting it on May 23rd, which basically means 
they will continue with the same border policy that we've had for years and years. And, and also to be clear, I should say the Biden administration kind of implemented carve outs when they came in. So the, from day one, President Biden said, we are not going to turn away unaccompanied children at the border. So all unaccompanied minors were allowed in. And then slowly more families with young children were allowed in. So they've been chipping away at it, but they're finally going to lift it for good on May 23rd. And Omnum, right now today, there is no public health reason to, to have a blanket denial of asylum seekers who have a legal right to petition, is there? Well, this was part of the tough part for them. It becomes a much tougher argument to make that we have to keep this in place because of the pandemic when you are lifting pandemic restrictions left and right across the country. And that was part of the argument from immigration advocates and others to say, these two things don't line up. How are you rolling back masking measures? How are you now, um, you know, releasing and kind of lifting all these other restrictions, but still saying we have to keep the border closed because of the pandemic? I mean, I will say by setting the date for May 23rd, they essentially bought themselves another two months. And that gives them time not only to try and prepare to the best of their ability to process what's surely going to be an increase in, in folks coming to the border, but also to kind of wait and see what happens with the pandemic and this BA2 variant. And then you have to imagine if things got significantly worse, which is the absolute worst case scenario for everyone, they could put it back into place or just say we're keeping it in place because we need to. Well, that's the fear that some Democrats, Senators Mark Kelly and Raphael Warnock and some in the White House, uh, is that there will be a crush of people coming over. You interviewed Secretary Mayorkas about a month or so ago and noted there were, I think this is right, 1.6 million encounters at the border last year, quadruple from the year before. So is there just going to be a, just a, a huge rush of people coming over May 23rd or May 24th? So that's what Homeland Security and other national security and immigration officials tell us. Um, the DHS officials held a background call with a few of us uh, before the announcement was made that they were lifting Title 42, that CDC had made the designation to lift Title 42. And they said that they are now preparing for basically different levels of scenarios. The worst case scenario they could see, and they've modeled all this out, is 18,000 encounters a day. And when we say encounters, this is another thing a lot of people who don't cover immigration a lot don't know. We're not talking about individual people because a lot of people try multiple times to cross. That's part of the reason we saw such a huge increase over the last year in numbers was if you had a single adult who crossed on a Monday, got turned back around within 48 hours, they might try to cross again two or three days later. And that within the month counts as multiple crossings. But 18,000 a day... That is something we have not seen. That is something our system is not built to handle. And officials are preparing to the best of their ability. It's hard to imagine how you process that kind of that kind of flow humanely and safely and in an orderly way. I'm, I'm going to turn this over to James just a minute. But first, who who is it that wants to come across the border? And, and, and how has that changed? This is the fascinating part about what's happening at the border. It has changed so dramatically over the last decade and the last 20 years in particular. It used to be largely people coming from Mexico. And to some degree, it still is. People from Mexico and people from what we call the Northern Triangle countries of Honduras, El Salvador, right. and Guatemala largely make up about 40 to 45 percent, maybe 50 percent or more. They have been seeing, senior officials tell us, an increase of people coming from way further afield, which speaks to growing instability and growing uncertainty and, and, and a lot of other reasons that people are fleeing their homes in other places and tapping into these existing networks of traffickers, which are promising them 
some kind of safe pass passage to the U.S. southern border. So we've seen a huge increase of people coming from Brazil and Venezuela and Nicaragua um, and Colombia, but they're also seeing growing numbers from places like India and Turkey. There have been some Syrian refugees who've showed up at the U.S. southern border. In December and I think in January, there were huge numbers of Russians and Ukrainians coming as well. So it's it's challenging even more for the system because it's much harder to handle and repatriate, if you have to, people coming from further afield. Yeah, sure. Is. James Carville. So asylum seekers have always had a kind of special place in immigration law. Explain exactly what the law was and what how did you how, how does one determine whether you're seeking asylum? I mean, anybody who wants to get in can say that. But it's my my appreciation. This has had a a long history in our immigration law. So if you could just take us through that a little bit. So the asylum threshold is essentially having to establish when you come to the U.S. southern border or to any U.S. port of entry, by the way. Under international law, you can arrive in any way to the U.S. and have an internationally protected right to claim asylum. What you're basically trying to do is establish what they call the threshold of credible fear, that you have some kind of fear of returning to your home country. And from then on, it's, and I am not a lawyer, much to my parents' disappointment, but from then on, there's a series of interviews and steps that you kind of have to meet um, in order to prove before an immigration attorney um, in what's essentially an adversarial hearing that you deserve to stay because if you were to return, your life would be in danger. And uh, the difficult part of that is twofold. One is when you have so many people coming in so many numbers and um, you don't have systems in place to legally support them, um, it's really hard to see how many of them can tap into what is a very poorly funded, very, very overwhelmed immigration legal system. It just is. And cases are backlogged years and years. And so you could arrive here on January of one year and not have your first hearing until a year later. And and so it's not a great system. It's not efficient. It doesn't serve the people who are seeking protection. It doesn't serve the people who are trying to make it work. And there hasn't been a ton done to fix it. Okay. What could you do to fix it? I mean, what's the option? You have all these people showing up. You yeah. know, everybody goes to the border. I, I agree. It's, it's a big mess. If, if, if you're in the, you know, what are they arguing in the White House? What, what are smart people saying we should do now? Or does anybody even know? Depends on which smart people you talk to. Um, <laughs> always so people, it's always a problem with smart people. We would say, I'll say, yeah, you give me five smart people, I'll give you seven opinions. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's been really interesting to see from just the legal side of it. If if we all say, okay, there has to be a legal way for people who are seeking protection to potentially find it in America, what does that look like? When you talk to people like immigration judges, they have been saying for years, for years, regardless of whether there's a Democrat or a Republican in the White House, they need more funding, they need more judges, and they need to be able to handle the cases in the way that they want to. And they will go back to even the Obama administration. The Obama administration came in and tried to sort of re-timeline how people had to prioritize asylum cases in court to try to speed it up. And that really messed up the system even more. And judges look at that and said, they really screwed us up. We could have been handling it much better. We know these cases better than anyone else. That further added to the backlog. 
So no one's been able to come in and, and say, this is what we need to do. I mean, more than anything, it's a really poorly funded government arm. And if money is one of the answers, anyone you talk to in that system says they could use more of it. So, so before I turn it over to Al, there, there are other things that present themselves in the border besides just refugees, and these are trucks, goods coming from Mexico. My understanding is the governor of Texas, in order to, well, I won't give you what I think is the reason, but I'll tell you what it, I think it is, and to help bolster his chances for re-election, his like stop and they have to inspect every truck, which of course is impossible to do. The Secretary of Agriculture in Texas, a gentleman by the name of Sid Miller, who's I think particularly odious Republican, but even he said, that "You're you're just going to drive up the cost of everything, and this is sort of impractical." So, what, what's going on there in terms of getting Mexican goods, particularly like produce, across the border, and what's the holdup here? Yeah, this has been this has been really fascinating to watch unfold over the last few days. As of last week. Governor Abbott in Texas, who you're right, is a two-term Republican. He's up for re-election in November. Um, not saying that's a reason. I'm just putting it out there as a fact. Uh, basically said, we don't trust that the Border Patrol and Border Protection are doing everything that they can to catch what has been an increasing number of people coming across the border. So we're going to implement our own security measures. So to be clear, any trucks, commercial trucks, and thousands of them cross the border every day, and Texas in particular is... I think Mexico is their single largest trading partner, but um, all those trucks get screened to some degree. But even Border Protection will tell you they miss a lot. I mean, when you look at the majority of, of, say, illicit drugs that end up coming across the border, the vast majority of them are coming through in trucks just like that, in in legal border crossings, right? So there's a huge screening problem there. We know that. So Governor Abbott basically said, well, they technically don't have jurisdiction. Only the federal government has jurisdiction at the border. But a few miles in, he's deployed the Texas police to say, we're going to run our own screenings. And that has basically backed up the system to a point where trucks are waiting 14, 16 hours at a time to cross at very, very busy border crossings. That's holding up produce. It's holding up a lot of things. And to be clear, I mean, these trucks aren't just going to Texas. These are trucks that go on to Iowa and Minnesota and Ohio. I mean, these are the trucks that enter there and go to the rest of the country, but they're being held up there. This could actually affect inflation rate is what I'm reading. That that Abbott slowing these goods coming into the country would, of course, make scarcity and demand, which will cause more inflation. Is, Is that a fair observation? Yeah, and you're hearing this from the industry groups already. I mean, they're calling it a crisis because that system is not built to handle, you know, double, triple, quadruple the amount of wait time built into that supply chain. And right. um, and they want to see it move. They want to see it. But it, the strange part of it is it could absolutely hurt the economy in Texas as well. And so it's kind of strange to see how that tension is going to play out. I'm a, another economic, my favorite economic columnist is, is, is Catherine Rampell. And she wrote the other day that the bigger problem of uh, rather than too many immigrants, it may be not enough coming across the border, that basically we need those immigrants to fill jobs, that we have a big supply chain problem. And some of that has to do with tight labor markets and you can't get people to do jobs. I know in the past, New Orleans and Houston could not have been rebuilt without immigrant, uh, immigrant workers. So, so, uh, but I guess that gets lost in the politics of all this. 
It does. And here's the thing we, sh- we should also note is in the past, when there have been major restrictions put on immigration for whatever reason, one of the first segments that you'll find lawmakers will often move on is those who come to work on farms or in the agricultural sector or in construction and so on, because they know that that is labor largely done by migrants. And so those will quickly be accepted out when there is legislation to be moved or carve-outs to be made. And and we've seen that happen in in recent years, too. But there's a longer-term economic argument, too. I mean, there have been studies done again and again by um, different cities across the country that look at the impact that immigrant populations have had on the local economy. And those show in very clear numbers the actual positive economic impact that comes with coming and, and settling in stable immigrant communities. So there, there's absolutely an economic argument to be made. I mean, one of the things you'll find even from industry leaders, it's people saying, yes, we need, we need more people coming. We absolutely need more. But as you guys well know, this whole thing gets locked up in a political, in a white hot political debate and no one's willing to budge. Yeah, it sure does. The, the other thing, I've seen several TV ads from mainly, I guess, just from Republican candidates that said, oh, we're there, you know, we're bringing drug peddlers uh, and illegal Democratic voters across the border. I, I think all the data has shown that people who come across actually commit less crime than other people who are here. And I can't believe there are many, if any, uh, people, undocumented workers coming across who are going to try to vote knowing that if they get caught, uh, they're going to be deported. I mean, that's just, a, it seems to me those are pretty bogus arguments. I think that's absolutely right. But I also think that these kinds of xenophobic and fear-mongering arguments have a real audience here in this country. Yeah. And that's why they get deployed again and again. I mean, this is one of the reasons I have to say, you'd like to assume everyone is operating in good faith when it comes to these conversations and debates, but some of us have been around long enough to see what happens and keeps happening time and again. There are very real steps that could be taken by Congress to try to fix this, and they keep bumping up against politics again and again. And the people who really get hurt are you know, the people who are in many cases, seeking legal protection or or have a right to come and don't have a way, and some of the communities they could be served by their presence. Yeah, James, you have one more. So, yeah, I, yeah. But so I'm saying the fact the number of people showing up in the border since Biden's been president has gone up exponentially. And so, I said, James, Correct. there's a reason for that. When Trump was president, they knew we had strict border controls. They knew we were enforcing the law. And once Biden got elected, he said, come on into the country. We got free health care for you. We got food stamps for you. We got cash grants for you. And plus, we can register and you can vote Democratic. And that's what's going on here. They, they knew when, when Trump was president to not show up because the border laws were going to be enforced and we, we were going to protect ourselves from COVID. We were going to protect ourselves from criminals and drugs coming across the border. And now Biden has given them the green light and they're taking a green light. And look, what, and that's why you have this mess down here. And why is that not true? <laughs> so I think the White House would say to you, they've, they've never said that. The president has never said that. The president well, I know. Um, had very clearly said, you know, we believe that some of these punitive measures the Trump administration put into place are inhumane. They don't represent who we are as a country. We're going to do what we can to address them. And then really face heavy criticism for not changing a lot of the Trump administration's policies. But do you also remember how much criticism Vice President Kamala Harris took for saying to people in the Southern Hemisphere and in parts of South America, don't come. The, the border is not open. 
I mean, this was a message they were repeatedly trying to deliver, but what they were up against is this super powerful network of traffickers and people who move misinformation really effectively and are saying to very vulnerable populations, now is the time to go. Sell your house, pack up your things, now is the time to go. We couldn't have done it with the previous administration, but we can do it now. And then once people are in these networks and in this web, there's really no way out. Well, all right, James. Look, I understand the argument that they make it kills us. Go ahead, Alvin. Uh, Amna, before you, you've been terrific. You've enlightened us. We've learned more about this issue than uh, than uh, James and I knew in years beforehand, and it is complicated. But but let me turn to one more subject, and that is that on Wednesday night you were doing a special for PBS on life after lockup. What happens when people get out of prison? And everybody out there, you can stream it uh, afterwards. Amna Navaz uh, on life after lockup. Tell us just a little bit about it. Yeah, this is a really incredible documentary. And I say that largely because I am piggybacking on the expertise and hard work of two of my colleagues, Mike Fritz and Frank Carlson, um, two producers at the NewsHour, who really spent years reporting on this issue. And so we started with the premise, which is just this basic fact, which is the U.S. incarcerates more people than any other country in the world, right? Um, And basically, we're now at a point where 70 million Americans have some kind of arrest or criminal record. So one out of every two Americans, one out of every two knows someone who has been incarcerated, which is kind of a stunning figure. So we started from the premise of, okay, well, hundreds of thousands of people are released every year. And for all the stories we know about incarceration and life inside prison, the story kind of stops when people get out. But for most people, that's when the real challenges begin. Because we have sort of a system, uh, a network of, of rules and regulations and policies in place that really limit to different degrees how people can work, where they can work, um, where they can live, which family members they can stay with, how they can parent. And a lot of studies have now shown that that web of rules and regulations keeps people from finding their footing. It keeps people from becoming back part of the society that they left. And it becomes a kind of cycle. So the documentary basically tracks the lives of four people in different circumstances to kind of figure out what happens after you leave prison. What does your life look like? How easy or how hard is it to get back into society? Well, Amna Navaj, you are better than advertised. And I want everybody out there to stream the PBS uh, show anchored by her documentary, Life After Lockup. So be safe, Amna Navaj. Thank you, Al. Good to see you. Now for our favorite segment, listener questions. They are so good, uh, and I hope our answers sort of measure up. The first is from Leanne in Oak Park, Illinois, right. James. She says, why do the Democrats allow the Republicans to control the narrative about everything? I'm so frustrated, Leanne is, by the lack of balls for Democrats. Why don't they go on the offensive? You know, Leanne, you hit on something to, to some extent I've, I've, I've been thinking about now. I'm I'm glad that you brought this up because our messaging is constipated and it doesn't, it lacks balls. It lacks assertiveness. And, you know, people agree with us. You know, Roe is a 73% issue. 
they're going to overturn it. They'll all but overturn it. Some people say that they won't mention that. I have no idea, but the effect of it is going to be the same. And we're going to lose that issue. We're losing issues that people really care about because we talk in constipated language and we're so afraid to offend anyone, we inspire no one. So I am very big on your question. I think you're asking the right question. And unfortunately, I wish I had a better answer, but I promise you this, I'm struggling to find one. And I hope our listeners write in like you do and keep helping us try to find the answer of why people agree with us and hate us at the same time. But that's what's going on. Good, Great great question, right. uh, Leanne. Uh, Sean from Trinidad oh. and Tobago, but he's now living. He's now living in Virginia. I don't know why he left there, but he's living in Virginia. He said, "I can't find an adjective to adequately describe my disgust with the way Congress allowed the enhanced child tax credit to expire. This was probably one of the easiest cost-benefit analysis in the history of government." Is there any chance of a standalone bill making its way to the president's desk? Boy, did you nail that, Sean. What they did is they let expire. They let expire something called refundability. And what that means in, in, in simple terms is that's money that goes to the poorest kids. And if you made it refundable so those poorest kids would get it the way they did in 2021, over 2 million kids would be lifted out of poverty. Over 25 million of the poorest kids would, would get more assistance. And there have been studies done by all kinds of groups that says basically, well, maybe some people will drop out of the workforce, as Joe Manchin keeps insisting. But, you know, there are going to be millions more kids who will get help, will go to school, will graduate, perhaps get a job and pay taxes. There's, that's one of the best cost-benefit analysis. And you all ought to write Joe Manchin and tell him all this crap about how it's just going to make people lazy is wrong. It's a really important thing to do. Well, first of all, I've been to Port of Spain. I've been to Trinidad and Tobago numerous times. I've worked down there in the early in this century. And it, it's good experience for modern American politics because at the time, and I, I doubt if much has changed, 40% of the country was of African descent. 40% of the country was what they call East Indi, India descent. Another 20 cent was mixed. And it's, I remember it, and somebody can help me, but Tuna Puna was the, was the swing constituency. You elected the parliament by, I think there were 18 different constituencies, and 16 of them were either majority, African and majority East Indian, and they were two, St. John something or another, and Tuna Puna. That's just a name you'll never forget. So somebody, if that's still the case down there, I'd like to know. But it was it was really good training uh, for sort of modern polarized politics in the United States. And I, I used to run around Queen Anne, Savannah in the middle of Port I, I have very, very good memories of Trinidad and Tobago. And you were for... I had, I had the, the, the East Indian guy. He was, his name was Bosato Pandy. He was a Shakespearean, act, Shakespearean actor in London. And came was like a union organizer in the cane fields down there and became prime minister for some period of time. And he, he and, different story. I'm just going to get your position. You are for the child tax credit. Me? Uh, enhanced child credit. It's, yes. it's the most brilliant thing we've ever done. I mean, Absolutely. Be, Absolutely. yeah, I, I think children not being hungry 
and having the opportunity to develop at an early age is essential for any country. I, I can't understand why we don't do this more, 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 more. Absolutely. Particularly for those poorer kids. You're right. absolutely right. James, uh, Elizabeth uh, in Atlanta says, do you think the insane Republican portray portrayal, uh, portrayal of Democrats as pedophiles will be effective messaging? You know, thank you, Elizabeth, because I used to say, no one's going to believe that. But I, I, I think that all of this, honestly, is one giant head fake. You understand they don't have a single thing that they're running on. Mitch McConnell said, I'll see us after the election. So if, if, you, if you're sitting there and you're a Republican strategist and you said, look, we can't run on Rick Scott's plan to, to raise taxes on 40 percent of the, the people in the United States, we sure can't run, you know, against, you know, cutting Social Security or cutting Medicare, which, of course, we all want to do. So if we can't run on that, let's accuse the Democrats of being pedophiles and we'll change the conversation. And that's what this is a result of. They can't say anything about themselves. So it's it's critical race theory, it's pedophilia, it's international trafficking, you name it. And you're going to keep getting more and more of this because what you know is they're not going to tell you anything that they want to do. And every time one of them slips up, it's another disaster. It's another disaster. So you're right on the money, but if you think about this, if you got nothing to say, somebody will think of something to say for you. So let's just say Nancy Pelosi is a pedophile. Or uh, Hillary Clinton yeah. has got, you know, s slave children at common runs a, pizza. Runs a ring in a pizza yeah. parlor, right. That, that's where you end up. Um, you know, Elizabeth, look up Josh Hawley, who was one of the prime um, um, accusers of uh, Judge, uh, outrageous accusers of Judge Jackson Brown. And there are stories when he was attorney general of Missouri. And guess who really just kind of forgot to prosecute some of those uh, pedophile cases? Josh Hawley. Uh, you know, it's worth, it's worth looking up. Uh, James, we have Timothy from Feasterville, Pennsylvania. Now, James, do you know Feasterville? I don't. I must be in the West. I don't, I don't know. I know the state pretty well. It's, it's like Feaster, F-E-A-S-T-E-R-ville. Beats me, Bob. We'll look it up soon as we get out of here. Yeah, or Timothy, you can write in and tell us where it's from. He, he said, good question. He says, I want to know your thoughts on Obama and Putin. Should Obama have done more as far as sanctions go? He's talking about 2014 uh, when Putin went in Crimea. Yes. Uh, Obama should have done more uh, because uh, if you knew Putin, he wasn't going to stop there. Uh, and I will say, I think Obama did a lot more than Trump would have done. Uh, Trump was the uh, a real enabler uh, of uh, Putin. But, yeah, we should have known earlier that uh, this guy is just a bad guy. Well, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, hand-wringing and should we have done this? Actually, I thought President Clinton had a good piece about, you know, when, when the Soviet Union fell, how, how they were doing the carrot and stick approach. And they, they did expand NATO, which, you know, I guarantee you, you know, our friend Roger Altman is glad that Lithuania is in NATO now. <laughs> I promise you. And it, 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 it may be Biden. I mean, Obama could have done, I don't know what he could have done more that would have been very effective, but we could all say it's easy enough to say somebody could have done something differently. 
But the fact of the matter is, Trump was going to. When Trump says, if I would have been reelected, Putin would have never invaded Ukraine, well, Trump is right because he would have gotten us out of NATO and he wouldn't have had to invade Ukraine. He could have just walked in. Right. That's, that's what Putin was calculating. Yeah, yeah that, and that's what, that, yeah. That's what they, they were hoping for. But no less than, you know, Trump himself, you don't have to, if you don't want to believe John Bolton, you don't have to believe John Bolton. You can just, Trump said it on numerous occasions. And, and all of the lies he tells, the one thing that is really true is he loves Putin and he hates Western Europe. And had no use for NATO. None. None. No, he, he not, not not only no use, he detested it, and he said it on on any number of occasions. In in, yep, in the idea James, that NATO has an offensive instinct or, or is is ludicrous. The whole argument starts with something ludicrous. You got NATO right on our borders. We don't feel secure. Oh come on! You really think Poland or, or you know, the Czech Republic is going to invade Russia. I mean, give me a break. It's too stupid for words. James, I, for our final question to you, I'm going to combine three because they're all good questions and they're all at least first cousins. Uh, so, so let me just go through them. Jameson in Chicago says, let's face it, Biden is not a good public speaker. If only there were some way to compensate for this lack of charisma. What are your thoughts on things we can do, clever scripts, witty rehearsals or whatever? Uh, and then we have Tony in, in Larkspur, Larkspur, Pennsylvania, who said, you know, James, you keep stressing how Republicans go for the juggler and how Democrats seem to be more passive, snakes versus butterflies. That said, if you could identify two or three Democrats that are strong enough to have what it takes to go after the Republicans. And finally, Zella in Los Angeles says, most of us know what needs to be done. Brag about Biden's amazing accomplishments. Stop whining. Uh, donate where the money is and produce results. Talk about it. Yet we don't do it. I think all three questions are pretty darn good, James. They're, 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 they're all very good, and they all go to a point. I'm going to try to make this point without – the Democratic Party has a massive problem with males, right? Now, we are losing non-white, non-college males. We are losing – non-white college males. We're losing white college males. White, we've lost white non-college males forever. And I'm sorry that the, the messaging and, and the, the party's outlook has been, to, to, to a huge number of males, has been off-putting. And I've been spending a lot of time with a lot of posters and a lot of female posters that are saying the same thing. We are hemorrhaging. And the 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 default position is we let the 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 sort of cultural left, which is a small part of the Democratic Party, identify us. And boy, name me a, a male spokesperson in the White House. A male spokesperson in in the cabinet. Now I understand you said, well, James, it was all males. We had to change things. I understand that. There's no. I've had people tell me this morning and yesterday that you would not find a job in today's Democratic Party. And I'm sorry, 
it's a problem. And we, 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 we overshot to correct the problem, and we're not, we're not building that much with females, and we're losing males by the drove. And it it's all has to some extent do with weak messaging, and they just keep putting it in there. And this is something that I'm going to explore going forward because it is a horrific problem. And I think every person that listens to this show knows it's a problem, that there's some risk in talking about it because, you know, people are going to say, well, you're just misogynistic. No, I'm not misogynistic. I'm, I'm trying to win an election, and you're trying to irritate the very people we need to run. We're just hemorrhaging like Hispanic males. You can't believe it. And a lot of that is because we have this our, – our messaging is just not that good, and it gets dominated uh, by people in these campaigns, people in these NGOs, people in, in, in the congressional staffers. That's where all this is, and and to, I'm just going to say it right out front. Our our, our message and our Im- image is just too effeminate right now. It's got to change. I'm sorry. Okay, Jameson, uh, and Tony, and Zella, uh, you heard it here. I'm sure we'll get some reactions, and we'll come back to that. Keep your please keep those those um, cards, letters, emails uh, coming in. Uh, we love these questions. We can't get to all of them, but sometimes we pick them up the next week. So keep them coming, and thank you. All right, James, now for the outrage of the week. Mine is former Vice President Pence spoke at the University of Virginia this week. It was a banal speech with some demagoguery ranting about the critical race theory, which isn't taught in any public schools that we know of, uh, but it's a handy race card for cheap politicians to play. But that's not my outrage. Uh, My outrage is that the student newspaper, the Daily Cavalier, editorialized that the ex-Vice President should not be allowed to speak. This is Mr. Jefferson's university. His First Amendment didn't limit free speech to only that with which you agree. I am hardly a fan of Mike Pence. Uh, I think that other than abiding by the very clear law on January the 6th, he was a Trump enabler and political poodle for four years. But he deserves the right to be heard. This is especially true on a college campus, whether it's a far right or far left figure, a Democrat or a Republican. So shame on the Daily Cavalier, which only gave credence to Pence's claim that the biggest problem in America is woke liberalism. Couldn't agree more. By, by the way, Teddy Kennedy famously spoke at Liberty University with Jerry Falwell on a podium with him. The, yeah. these, these left-wing college kids, they, they're out of their minds, right? And, mm-hmm. of course, they're just pandering to their audience. That's all that is. But it, it's, a good, uh, it's a good outrage, and it's good to call them out for this silliness. All right, so I'm, as opposed to an outrage, I, I'm, I'm going to pay a tribute. I'm going to pay a tribute to Gilbert Gottfried, who died at 67 this week. I, I knew Gilbert slightly. I was on late-night television with him I, I, at least once, I think twice. I've always his, his, his humor is, you know, very different and kind of can be screechy and obviously very vocal. He had the greatest moment in the history of comedy, bar none. 
And in October of 2001, he was speaking at the Friars Club. It was the first kind of public event after 9-11. And he told a joke about buying a one-way ticket from Kennedy Airport to the World Trade Center that literally bombed. And I showed this to my class, all right? So the greatest comeback of any I've ever seen where he just said, I'm going deep. And he told the aristocrats joke. All right. If you're not prepared to, to listen to some really off-color stuff, don't do this. But if you want to see how somebody flat on their ass, and I teach my students this, is that y'all can report me to the university, you can get me fired. Because if the legislature saw that I was letting y'all listen to something like this, they'd run me out of town. They never did report me. But you should listen to that, and there's a, a real lesson there because he had, and Hugh Hefner was up there, and everybody just groaned at that joke. And then the Aristocrats movie is really one of the, the, the best movies I've ever seen where they retell a joke over and over. But if any of you have a, a sort of strong constitution and are kind of tolerant for off color language, I, I, I urge you to Google Fires Club Gilbert Gottfried. October 2001, and you, you'll see the greatest, what it acknowledged is the greatest moment in the history of American comedy. Okay, will do. You got your orders out there, mm-hmm. ladies and gentlemen. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics Royal Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicsroarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors. The Democracy and Danger podcast. Chili Sleep, Raycon, and Hell on High Water podcast in the show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them. When you do, you help make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.